Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Adam Gentner, who is Director of Business Development Latin American Expansion at Sonin. Today we will discuss microgrids to power Puerto Rico. Adam has six years of solar industry experience. He likes exploring the way technology and renewables can reshape the energy landscape to meet the challenges of the future, especially in disaster-stricken areas and developing regions. Prior to joining Sonin, Adam worked in technical support leadership with Fronius USA. He earned his B.A. in Applied Physics from St. John's University in 2010 and received his M.B.A. in 2015 from Indiana University Northwest. He has a passion for humanitarian work, having volunteered with various organizations from Minnesota to Chile and most recently spent a year with the Benedictine Volunteer Corps in Esquipulas, Guatemala. Adam, welcome. Thank you, Elena. Great to be here. Let's before we talk about microgrids and get into the specifics of Puerto Rico and the post hurricane situation, can you just give us a primer? What is Sonin? Sure. So Sonin started in twenty ten in Germany, uh, really to target the problem of the we call it the duck curve. So in the Middle of the day in Germany, they're producing a lot of solar energy and not consuming as much energy. And then right, right around at the end of the day when the solar production starts stopping as the sun is setting, everyone goes home and uses a bunch of energy. So there's a big ramp up. They call it the duck curve because if you look at the energy graph, it looks like a duck. So to target that duck curve, Sonin started to really help solve a number of significant problems on the grid that were caused by this duck curve to store the solar energy during the day to make sure that it's not feeding onto the grid, and then to discharge against the load at night and level out that curve. And, and it solves a number of, of very significant problems. Now, in the U.S., we, we started here in 2015, so five years after Germany, and the, the target is a little different because we don't have the, the penetration of solar into the grid as they do in Germany. So here we, we focus a lot on backup power, on resiliency against power outages, hurricanes, and then also a little bit on the on the duck curve. That's kind of the future that we're looking for in the United States. So energy storage and management is what we do. And when we say energy storage in this instance, is it specifically solar energy? So we have what, what in the industry is called AC coupled, but our battery is, is fairly agnostic against what type of energy is being stored. It could be wind energy. It could be solar energy. Uh, we do actually work with in, in, excuse me, generators as well, but typically it is solar. In fact, Sonnen means suns in German. So it, it is really designed towards a solar battery or towards solar production, which is for a consumer usually the most easy. It's, it's most, uh, I guess, set it and forget it type of energy. You don't have to do any maintenance on it. So. That's by far the most common solar. Based on my limited knowledge of solar energy, one of the main issues that I'm aware of is that you need a lot of solar cells in order to collect the energy. 
and that the cost of those cells, certainly at a residential level, at a consumer level, can be very high, and it takes a long time in order to recover that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That's absolutely correct. So, you know, basically when you plug your house into the grid, you pay a per kilowatt hour cost. Now, the utility paid the upfront cost for all of the generation and transmission equipment for the lines, the generation. But you're paying, they've, they've financed this probably with loans, and you're paying per kilowatt hour towards that initial investment. With solar, you're making the upfront investment on your energy costs. So it is a lot of money uh, upfront. Now, the good news is that the cost of solar has has fallen dramatically in the last 10 years to the point where payback times are usually, especially in places like California, Hawaii, where there's energy is a little more expensive, payback times are in the seven to eight years, whereas the lifetime of the asset is often 15 to 20 years. So, we have gotten to a point with solar where there is a, a pretty good financial payback. Although, of course, you are you are financing upfront the whole cost of your energy production, so the upfront costs are, are significant. Would you be able to compare the cost of traditional energy versus solar energy as it stands now? We're talking about paying upfront versus uh, paying as part of the grid, uh, is there a way for you to illustrate the, the difference between the two? I don't know what the actual kilowatt hour costs of solar power are as generated. Um, but I, I do know, like I said, you, you buy a solar at, you buy a solar, your solar production your panels and your inverter. Uh, the, you're probably going to have that for 15 to 20 years. So that's how long it will be generating power. And you'll have paid back the initial investment after year seven is usually where the numbers are. So you do have, you know, it takes you seven years on paying up a loan or whatever. And then beyond that, you are basically producing energy for free. That's, that's the return on that investment. So, but I, I don't know the actual per kilowatt hour cost of solar. What about differences based on geographic location, such as differences between, say, an urban setting, a suburb, suburban, and a rural setting, or by state, say, comparing California to Texas to Ohio or Florida? Sure. So, so the first question that we usually get is, does solar work in places that are often cloudy? And the answer is yes. So there's a huge, huge abundance of solar energy production in Germany, which is almost on the whole cloudier than any part of the mainland USA. So the only part of the USA that gets less sun per year than the sunniest part of Germany is Seattle. So pretty much anywhere in the U.S., solar energy will produce energy. Now, uh, the payback, of course, depends on what you're normally paying for for energy. So if you if you live in Missouri where it's $0.08 cents a kilowatt hour, it's obviously going to take you longer to pay back this solar investment, which largely costs the same as it does in California, than it would in California where you're paying, you know, 20 cents a kilowatt hour. So the, the, the costs 
of your of your energy production or your energy consumption. So the cost of the grid energy obviously plays a pretty significant role in how long your energy, your solar energy takes to pay back. But I, I don't know that I can quantify that right now. Right now. I meant even in percentages, what, is there a huge difference between the states, between the locations? And, for example, as we're talking about Puerto Rico today, when you have a situation where the infrastructure has been so severely devastated, what advantages and disadvantages are you facing? Or similarly in Texas, where there were so many people who were affected, who lost their homes permanently or temporarily, in what way does that affect the availability of clean energy? Sure. So now we get into the, the necessity of a battery. So before I was talking strictly about grid-tied solar, and that's the traditional type of solar that feeds into the grid. And in a lot of the U.S., the grid is stable enough to count that as just a generating capacity. So uh, go back to the Missouri example. If you have a solar uh, system, a grid-tied solar system, installed in Missouri, you can you have a fair chance of assuming that it's going to produce for the next 20 years on a stable grid. Now, in, in Florida, Florida, Hawaii, Florida, um, parts of Hawaii, Puerto Rico, uh, a lot of the Caribbean, Texas, places that are that are subject to power outages, all of a sudden you have a very real uh, need for energy storage. So Puerto Rico just suffered another power outage yesterday. So at this point, the, the hurricane was in mid-September, we're in March, and they still don't have stable grid in Puerto Rico. Now, if you have a grid-tied solar system, which only works when the grid is up and functioning, you haven't been able to use that in Puerto Rico for the last uh, six months. And that's where battery storage really comes in handy. So like I said, the U.S., for Sonin, the U.S. market requires off-grid and backup production. So most of the systems we're selling into Puerto Rico are designed to meet the needs of the house. So essentially, instead of feeding on energy and using it as a as a financial asset just to make money by feeding energy onto the grid, which is the traditional grid-tied solar model, they are creating a little tiny uh, micro, I call it nano because it's almost too small to be called a microgrid, but they're creating that on their house. So they are becoming their own utility across the board. So they are producing their own energy, they are using their own energy all in their house. So they don't need to connect back to the grid if they want. Now that obviously changes the, the numbers, right? Adding the cost of batteries into the system increases the, the cost of the system. Uh, battery technology is, is, I would say it's not cheap at this point, it's, it's a significant investment. But in Puerto Rico when the option is, you know, not have power or, or have your own clean, renewable and very, very reliable power. A lot of people have made a, uh, the choice that it's worth having the clean and reliable power. So in terms of payback time, you know, I, I think you're paying that back. You're starting to have the payback almost immediately as you have power, can run your fridge, can run your lights, and, and can get back to a normal life. Does that mean that only the well-to-do have access to these microgrids? What's the entry level for the micro or the nano grids that we're talking about? Yeah, so what we're seeing in the in the mainland especially is that it is at this point, you know, it, it's for 
the more well-to-do. Those are people who are who are purchasing a, a solar and sonin battery system. They're the ones who can afford it. And, and and when the grid is more or less stable, say in Florida, you may have three or four weeks a year when there's no grid. Those are the people who really it's worth it for them to have access to this power. In Puerto Rico, the situation is so dire that that's been pushed down. It's it's now not a luxury or not a, a security blanket like it is in the mainland U.S. It's a necessity for a normal life. So uh, we're seeing that move down the chain to uh, everybody in the or to the you know not just the the very well to do but you know anybody who can afford it now has a very clear uh, need for this energy storage. Now you know Sonin we realize that that our our product is largely at this point it's new to the market it's a high tech option and it's it's it is it is a higher I'd say value product that is going more towards the well to do. And that's why, for us, it's important to give everybody in Puerto Rico access to um, these renewable resources when they have no other options. And that's why we've started our, our Puerto Rican Energy Security Initiative and the Del Sol Foundation for Energy Security, which aims to convert some of our success into donated microgrids for people who maybe can't afford it and communities in Puerto Rico that where they maybe can't afford their own systems, we're, we're donating systems to make sure they have access to potentially life-saving power. So you said a few minutes ago that a nano grid was essentially capable of powering a single household. Um, would you tell us a little bit more about that? What kind of capacity does it have? Yeah, so the our system is, is more or less designed for a single household. That's you know, our vision is is uh, residential energy storage. Like most things, you can adjust the size of the energy storage and the size of the energy production to meet the needs. So uh, traditionally, if you have, you know, a number of houses that are powered and a, a big wind or solar, you know, installation on a community, that would be called a microgrid. Our vision is to take it even farther to the point where each house can become its own. And, again, I call it nanogrid just because that's um, smaller than microgrid, but to take it even smaller. But you can adjust the size of energy storage and, and production to meet the needs. So in as a little background, in energy there's kilowatt hours, which is energy, and you can think of that as the, the size of the gas tank. Right. If you if you convert that into cars, so the number of kilowatt hours is the size of the gas tank, and then power is kilowatts. That would be the size of the engine. How much can you produce? How much can you get out of that at one time? So your solar panels would be the kilowatts, and your energy would be the kilowatt hours. So you, you can adjust both of those as needed, as as long as you have roof space to install more panels and and floor space to to install more batteries. You can always adjust, but you know we found that a, a traditional system of around 14 kilowatt hours and um, maybe around six kilowatts of energy production is, is enough for you know the typical home in Puerto Rico to run more or less autonomously. And what kind of cost is involved in, in that? The costs are hard to pin down. It, it really depends on the this type of house. It depends on you know where the electrical panels are. A, a lot of our costs 
are um, determined by the uh, installation partners that we have. So they they will do an analysis on the house and come up with it. The, the system to bring your house totally off grid is on the very low end. We're looking at at least thirty thousand. So it, it is not a a small investment, but it is. Um, obviously, that goes up depending on the size of the house and the, and the size of the energy need. But like I said, to take your house totally off grid, to have complete independence from the Puerto Rican energy company, which does not seem able to provide a reliable grid, is a pretty valuable thing. Just to make sure I understood, so you're saying that the nano grid, which producing 14 kilowatt hours for the typical home in Puerto Rico has an entry level cost of 30,000. So again, I can't say exactly what the costs are at a certain kilowatt hour a kilowatt because it's at some point you have to install it and there are certain difficulties and certain costs that go into installing it. Uh, it, it could vary pretty heavily depending on the size or the type of solar panels and inverters you have. But the typical house costs, so, you know, getting away from the kilowatts and kilowatt hours, typical houses, the the, the entry level would be, um, like I said, at least 30,000. But it, it, it heavily varies from there. I can't, I can't say exactly what the costs are for an individual house. And that's the nano grid as opposed to the micro grid, correct? Yeah, that would be a house-sized um, Again, a nano grid is just my my term for it. <laughs> sure. How would that translate to locations that are not in the dire situation that you're seeing in? And I'm assuming this applies to the Virgin Islands and other parts of the Caribbean as well, with the lack of infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, so places where they have significant power outages. The costs are, are, are largely the same. I mean, there's there's slight variations in the in the installed costs of these systems, depending on the on the region you're in. But the costs, you know, are, are largely the same. It's it's mostly material costs um, to get this equipment to your house, to get it installed. Um, but the 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 need I think is is definitely there in Puerto Rico. I think the need's there in other parts of the mainland U.S. too. For example. We have an office in Atlanta, which was actually hit by Hurricane Irma last year, uh, which knocked out power and Internet for large portions of the city of Atlanta, as far inland as it was. That was quite a powerful hurricane. And, you know, businesses had to shut down because they had no power and Internet. Now, with a, a fairly small system, you could power the lights and Internet for a business. I think there's there's a, a pretty good case to be made for that. But, again, it's... It's a, a pretty individual cost-benefit analysis for the business owner, but I think there are business cases to be made everywhere. Uh, me personally, for the ability to take maybe my kitchen and living room off-grid and, and run my refrigerator and lights and, and router and computer, uh, there's a pretty huge personal value in that for me. So, yeah, I think it depends on the person. What I'm understanding is that this at the moment could serve as a backup. So if the grid is down, you have a means to have, as you were describing, certain parts of the house and access to the Internet, et cetera. 
Are the costs of entry and the structure that we're discussing here, as in microgrid, the same, or are there significant differences between what you would have in places with low or no infrastructure, such as the hurricane-ravaged Caribbean islands and the mainland where we still have a functioning grid for the most part? Yeah, so, so costs of entry are, are largely it, – it's hugely dependent on, on energy. You know, some – I've seen some commercial businesses with huge lighting needs and, and air conditioning. They, they can use an enormous amount of energy. Uh, and some places really use hardly energy, any energy. So it, it depends really heavily on the – uh, type of business and the type of building that they have. So it, it's really hard to say exactly what the costs of entry are, but it's it's I think a little more easier to quantify the value that you're getting. So you can you can look at what the value to us was to shut down operation um, in Atlanta for three days because there was no power and, and electricity when we were just starting up a factory there, and and you can see that there's a pretty easy way to quantify what the value of having that system was. What? But again, that's that's for backup. In, in Puerto Rico, the the benefits are are greater because there is no grid. So it's it's really the difference between backup and and complete off grid capabilities. Is there a minimum requirement that you need to have in order for the microgrid to work, other than of course sunlight? And I think what you were saying earlier is that sunlight is available even in places where you think there's not enough. What else do you need in order for the microgrid to be viable? Uh, that's that's pretty much it. I mean, we've we've installed so some of our microgrids, the donated ones in Puerto Rico, went into locations that had really very little else. We installed the electrical infrastructure in the structure. As long as you have a roof for solar panels and a place to store the batteries and the ability to install some electrical infrastructure, that being a panel and some wiring in the house, there's there's very little else that's needed. What about a middle ground? What comes to mind, for example, for a lot of people is a generator. Is there such a thing as a clean energy system that can tide you over in that time when the grid is down that can help you keep some basic parts of your home or your business functioning, but that isn't quite replacing everything that you would normally have as part of the grid. Yeah, I can say that a lot of people in the mainland, especially the mainland where the houses tend to be quite a bit bigger and the energy needs tend to be quite a bit larger, uh, a lot of people do use, you know, that that's one of the main use cases for the Sonin. And, and other battery systems is to act as a as an intermediate source, not to take the house fully off grid, or maybe to take a certain portion of the house, but not the whole house fully off grid. But you know they do use these these batteries and solar as a um, as a, a backup generator. And obviously, if you if you're not trying to take the house completely off grid, you can get by with a much smaller 
system. It, it all depends on the energy usage and how long you want to be able to sustain for. So a lot of people do use the the solar and and battery systems as backups. They it de- it depends on the amount of energy you're going to use, and it depends on the length of time you want to be off grid for. But obviously, if you're not being completely self-sustained off grid, you can get by with a much smaller system. It, it really depends on your energy usage, and that's the beautiful thing about these is you you can really suit the size of the system to the needs that you have, as long as you have a knowledgeable uh, installation partner to work with. Are we referring to the solar panels that we all see sort of on house and building rooftops and sometimes in yards? Yes. Yep. Those are the exact ones. What is the ratio of energy to the space of the cells? So they, it keeps going up as these panels get more and more efficient. But if you've, you've seen them, they're usually broken up into rectangular blocks. Uh, and one of those rectangular blocks is anywhere between 200 to 300 watts, between 250 to 300 watts on average. The average system, I would say, is at least 5,000 watts. So if you do the quick math on that, that's, you know, an average system being about 20 of those rectangular panels. And how much space does that require in square feet or meters? I would say, well, each each panel is maybe... A foot and a half by three, so 90 square feet. But that's that's a, a guess off the top of my head. I'm not sure. It, it'll depend pretty heavily on on which panel. There are there are pretty significant variations in inefficiency and and energy density for these panels. What do people who are in hurricane and storm areas do when the storm approaches if they have the panels in an area that's exposed to the winds? Is Do they put them indoors? Do they cover them up? Um, otherwise, are they risking that the panels themselves are going to disappear? Yeah, so that unfortunately that did happen on a number of installations in Puerto Rico. The panels are permanently on the roof. They're installed up there with either a type of ballast, which is just weight to hold them down, or they're bolted into the roof. Uh, there are uh, tools that can be used to make sure that the panels are securely fastened to the roof. You know, all of the systems that we've installed, the microgrid systems, were, were physically bolted to the roof. You can install what's called flashing, which is basically just sheets of metal on the side of the panels to make sure that wind can't get underneath them. The big risk is when wind comes actually not directly at the panels, but from the side, it can come in and, and pull them up. So if, if they're protected from the sides, wind traditionally can't get underneath them and pull them up. Most of the systems we had installed uh, survived the hurricane, and, and a lot of it has to do with how they're installed and, and are they installed uh, in a way that 
that protects them from the wind. So we had a number of systems that were directly in the path of the hurricane and survived. I know of some systems that were pretty far away from the hurricane path and they, and they didn't. So a lot of it has to do with how well they're installed. Um, but you know, I, I see no reason why solar panels can't be installed to survive a hurricane, a category five hurricane. Like I said, we've, we saw a number of our systems actually survive a, a category five hurricane. So I, I don't, I don't think it needs to be a problem, but on some cases it is a problem. Yes, I had understood that when you get to a certain speed of, of wind and gusts reach a certain level, there is no structure that can actually safely withstand them. So I assume that that would extend to the solar panels. But that takes me to the next question is, are there any microgrids or panel systems that allow you to take those and fold them and store them somewhere indoors until the storm passes so you don't risk losing what could potentially be the system that keeps you connected and powered after the storm passes. You know, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know. I know that, like I said, all of our systems that we had in the ground in Puerto Rico when the, when the storm passed were the traditional with the uh, panels permanently mounted outside. Obviously, you're right. If, if the if the hurricane is such that the structure or the roof doesn't survive the storm, then obviously the panels themselves can't survive on a structure that's no longer standing. But, um, you know, most of the structures did survive. A lot of them lost uh, windows and roofs. But, you know, those that we had um, in the path of the hurricane, a lot of them did did survive. So, I don't know. I don't. In answer to your question, I don't know if anybody has created a, a mountable and removable panel system yet. What type of life shelf life, or I don't know what the term would be for microgrids? How many years does the average microgrid in a tropical environment, for example, such as what you have in the islands, what kind of a life does that have? Because of course, certainly. Any property that's oceanside, as we know, the sea air is very corrosive. Inland, perhaps, is less so. What would you say is the average or the range of these microgrids that they are still viable after how many years, or do you even know? Yeah, so there's actually quite a bit of, uh, of data to suggest uh, an answer. But there's there's two questions. One is is normal usage. So how long it lasts in a normal use, and the, and the other is, you know, how much degradation is taking place because of corrosive environments. So our systems are designed to be installed inside, which doesn't remove the risk of corrosive air from from reaching them, but it does uh, significantly reduce the damage that we see. Uh, uh, as of now, I don't know of any systems in Puerto Rico that were installed. You know, inside like they're supposed to be that are that are facing undue wear and tear. The solar panels are obviously outside. There's no way to put them inside. But a lot of them are rated and tested for corrosive environments. None of the being an outdoor electrical equipment, none of the electrical wiring or metal is exposed to the air at all. It's all protected inside of the of the wires and connections. So, uh, you know, we don't 
with a properly designed and installed system, we don't see undue levels of wear and tear. Now, in terms of, of regular usage, unfortunately, there's still a pretty significant variation in terms of battery chemistry and longevity. Uh, the, the technology is very new. Like I said, our company, which is probably one of the oldest companies in the uh, solar energy storage space, started in 2010. So, you know, work back from there. There's not a lot of, of, of time for the market to kind of select, you know, weed out the, the technologies that, that the market doesn't want. So, you know, our system, our batteries, we've designed them specifically for home, for home use uh, in cycling a home's energy storage uh, and cycling a home's energy power. And, and we, so we have tested our system to last to about 10,000 cycles. We warranty the whole electrical system for 10, for 10 years, but at a single cycle a day, we expect and we've tested our battery modules to last for a total of 26 years. That's 10,000 cycles at one cycle a day. So that's our technology. You know, a lot of a lot of other companies are using a different battery chemistry, which is typical in electrical cars. You'll see a specific battery chemistry, which can last for, you know, maybe, maybe 1,500, 2,000 cycles, which is more than enough for a car to use. But if you're using, you know, energy storage in your home, it needs to last quite a bit longer and to face different challenges. So, you know, as you can see, there's a, a pretty wide range of how long a battery system will last, anywhere from uh, 1,500 cycles to, to 10,000 plus cycles. So it, it's a hard question to answer, and it, it really it really depends on which system you get. What type of maintenance and support does the system require? In other words, once it's installed and in place, how often does it need to be checked? How much TLC is involved? So that's that's one of the big revolutions that led to lithium-ion being used as the main chemistry. So all the all the batteries, all the main batteries on the market today are variations of lithium-ion. So we use lithium-iron phosphate. There are others that use nickel-manganese-cobalt. All of them would fit under the umbrella of what we call uh, lithium-ion. These batteries, the, the great thing about them is they're all self-contained and don't require any regular maintenance. Unlike traditional battery systems that required, uh, say, a lead-acid battery system would require almost consistent maintenance on a weekly, monthly basis. These are designed to be set in a corner and to work without uh, any sort of regularly scheduled maintenance for decades. And should something go wrong because things fail, that's just every certain number of items, there's bound to be some that malfunction statistically we know and or because there's a storm or whatever the circumstances what kind of a support network do you have available so that customers can get customer support in a timely fashion or maybe flip the question around how much time is required before a customer can get customer service at their place of business or home. 
Yeah, so we, we traditionally will work with the original installation partner. And the, the value there is that we, you know, they're usually located pretty close to where the, the installation has occurred. We support our systems fully. We have um, our, our service team is staffed from 8 a.m. Eastern time to 8 p.m. Eastern time. So we have a full schedule throughout the day. And, and like I said, we have installation partners and also field service across the nation. So we really, that's Stoner, at least, we really pride ourselves on the service that we offer to our partners and to our end customers, the owners of the battery systems. Uh, in terms of time turnaround on getting the problem resolved, it'll often re- depend on the type of problem, but most of them we can resolve remotely with software resolutions. So the, the time to resolution is, is usually very quick. When you say quick, were we talking about days? Days, yeah. Uh, it, you know, from the time that we become aware of it, um, which we often will based on software alerts that we have, so so often we can resolve a problem before the end customer is aware of it. But um, you know, once we once we find out about it, depending on the type of problem, it's hours to days. You know, th- these systems we realize these systems are important. We realize what these are to our customers, which is often a source of security and, and, and backup energy power. So it, it, it's very important to us that the problems are resolved and they, and they go back to having access to this, this sense of and device that provides security for them. So we, we certainly don't want to delay on, on how long we take to resolve problems. So what has been involved in the microgrid setup in Puerto Rico, and how is that different from what you have encountered in the past? So, you know, on the electrical side, there's, there's it's pretty much the same. We can, from the time we decide to, we, we, we select the site and decide where to install it, uh, we can usually complete an installation within one day. I don't think any of these have taken more than a day. Uh, you have to find a roof that's acceptable for the panels. You have to find a a place where you can install the system. And then uh, on all of our donated microgrid systems, we have installed a separate electrical panel which runs specific loads. So, for example, we have one site that is a, a food dispensary. They dispense food to people who have lost their homes and, and access to food in the Umacao region of Puerto Rico. Uh, we installed a separate panel and just ran the refrigerators directly off of this panel. So um, the installations are, are quite e- easy. The logistics of getting all of the equipment to Puerto Rico was quite difficult, especially directly after the hurricane. Fortunately, we had a number of systems already on the island because we were already um, working in Puerto Rico with some partners there. Named Pura Energia uh, is our main partner, and they've done all the microgrids with us. So we were able to to mobilize those systems quickly, but getting the remaining systems to the island was difficult. But on the electrical insights install side, it's it's uh, almost identical to a system you would get in Maine or California or Hawaii. It's it's a, a fairly straightforward install for a capable installer. That makes me think of the difference between, say, urban, suburban, and perhaps more importantly, under regular circumstances, 
rural areas because those are the most isolated and certainly if there are weather conditions that knock out the grid, those are the people who are most likely to become isolated because it will take longer for a fix to arrive where they're at. How is that integrated, if you will, into the microgrid system or does it make any difference? Once the system is installed, it, it operates largely independently. So if we install it on a home, and I'll say, you know, in Florida, we have a number of systems. It's a, a large market for us because of the hurricane risk that, that Florida sees as well. And a lot of our systems are in fairly rural parts of Florida because those are the parts that are going to lose power. If a hurricane comes, there's a fair chance that they'll get power in, in downtown Miami back up pretty quickly. But in, you know, rural parts of Florida, they they may take quite a bit longer to return power. So a lot of our systems are out there. Uh, the logistics of the install can be difficult sometimes, but like I said, mostly the installs take place in, in uh, a day or under. So it, it's typically not a problem. You know, once the system's installed, it'll, it'll run when the power goes out. It, it, it'll transfer automatically off-grid and, and start providing power. What do you see ahead Adam, so you guys have now, you have a lot of experience in Europe, you're in the U.S. Now you've dealt with areas of Puerto Rico that have been devastated in many respects and where the infrastructure has collapsed uh, in Florida as well, hurricane-damaged areas. And from that, you must have a lot of takeaways. What do you anticipate that's going to mean in terms of changes, innovations, improvements, timelines, costs, et cetera, for the future. Sure. So um, I guess that's a, that's a pretty big question. The, to, to me, the immediate need that we see in Puerto Rico, I see that expanding out. So, you know, as the value of solar-powered energy storage becomes more set, as it becomes more evident in places like Puerto Rico, I think we're going to see an expansion of the solar power backup and off-grid market out of Puerto Rico, especially to the places we see a lot in, in like New York as well, where they, you know, after Superstorm Sandy, but places where there are uh, natural disasters, because they are more likely to lose power more often and, and to experience the uh, pretty severe discomfort that comes with not having power and and. I think there's a there's a, a pretty significant case for it. Beyond that, what we have in Germany as a as a bit of a background, in Germany they have what we call a deregulated energy market. So in the US we'll often have one company who's responsible for building the transmission infrastructure, the lines, the wires, uh, the transformers, everything with transmission. And the same company builds the generation infrastructure and runs it. So they produce all of the energy. So in California and in, in Los Angeles, we have LEDWP. In Puerto Rico, they have PREPA. That one company does everything. In Germany, one company builds the lines and maintains them, and that's all they do. And, and they are paid to maintain the lines and make sure that you always have energy available to all of your customers. And then any other company, as long as you meet requirements, can come in and start producing energy uh, to feed into the grid, and that has led to a significant uh, boom, I guess, of of um, innovation 
in the Puerto Rican, excuse me, in the German energy market. And that's where, that's where Sonin came in and started uh, operating as a uh, um, service provider for the grid. So all of the batteries that we have installed across Germany are connected via one software platform called the Virtual Power Plant. We call it the Sonin Community in Germany. But all of these systems are connected. And when the grid has something that is causing it to be unstable, maybe you have a big you know, gust of wind or there's a, a heavy wind day in northern Germany where they have a bunch of wind farms or a big cloud passes over some big solar production facilities in the south of Germany and the grid becomes unstable, all of these Sonnen systems can discharge at one time to the grid to help stabilize it. They can stabilize the frequency or they can stabilize the voltage or just ensure that there's enough energy being fed onto the grid or taken off the grid to make the load curve smooth. And there's a big value. And in Germany, because of that significant value that each system provides, multiplied across all the systems when they're aggregated, you come into a situation where all of the Sonnen, the, the Sonnen customers in Germany who are part of the Sonnen community, we can guarantee them no electrical bill up to a certain kilowatt hour of consumption based on the fact that their system, their Sonnen system, is providing a value to the grid. Now, in the U.S., we don't have this because we have this, I guess, grid monopoly. So in, in I can't come in as, you know, Adam Solar and start producing energy and feeding it onto the grid as my own utility. I have to work with LADWP, and that's how it's set up, and, and there's a lot of value in, in having that, but it does stifle a bit of this innovation that's happening. So I think what we'll start to see, and I hope to see it in Puerto Rico once the grid gets up and stable, is we'll have all of these systems, these individual, you know, nanogrid-capable systems that were installed for energy security, all of a sudden have a pretty significant value when they're tied to the grid. So especially in Puerto Rico where there's, you know, pretty wild variations in energy production, there's variations in energy consumption. It's an island, a very small one. I think we'll, the future that I hope to see is all of these systems working in a grid-tied matter. So the future, I think, of energy storage will move us away from just off-grid uh, energy security. Obviously, we'll need to incorporate that in the future, but we'll start to see a value for connecting these systems to the grid. And we're starting to see that in Arizona. Sonnen has what we call the, the Sonnen community in Jasper. It's a, a new construction that's been announced. 2,900 homes will each have a Sonnen and a solar system. And the goal in this community in Arizona will be to aggregate all of these 2,900 battery systems with this software to what we call a virtual power plant. So at 10 kilowatt hours each, all of a sudden you'll have almost 3 megawatt hours of energy storage. And we'll give access to this to Arizona public the Arizona public utility and they will start to utilize these battery systems to charge and discharge against that what we called the duct curve earlier they'll charge and discharge against that hopefully the goal at the end of all this will be to avoid creating to avoid manufacturing a peaker plant to uh, meet these needs so they'll use these sound systems in each house to avoid making a new 
uh, plant, a new power plant, which is a really cool idea, really cool innovation. And of course, should the grid go down, each of these houses can island and and provide their, you know, nano grid on, on each of these systems. But when the grid's up, each of these systems will be used when aggregated to uh, solve a problem for the grid, which will in turn generate revenue for the owners of the system. So to me, that's the real future that that energy storage is going to move into. And that's the real, real excitement is, you know, what comes after we have all these systems installed. That makes me think of the microgrids that you have in Puerto Rico. As I understand it, you have nine or ten microgrids that are assisting to provide power for schools. So now you have about, I think it was, 150 students, you said, in a remote town of uh, Orocovis who have electricity thanks to these microgrids. So this is an aggregate of the electricity. Yeah, so that, that's a good point. So we have the, the Matria School in, in in Orocovis, we have two microgrids, which, you know, when when running, power the school. These are the, you know, they power the kitchen and the lights and the computers for the kids to use. But the real idea here is that we have that system in Orocovis, which is way up in the mountains, in the middle of the island. And we also have one in La Perla, which is in San Juan, in the capital, and one in Umacao, which is on the other side of the island. The idea is, once the grid is back, these are off-grid right now because the, the only goal right now is energy security for these. We want to make sure that the school has power and that when the prep system goes down, these students don't have to, to go to class in the dark and not use their computers and not and eat, eat cold canned food. So, we, you know, the only goal right now is energy security. But next year, once prep has fully stabilized the line, the goal will be to connect this system in Orocovis and connect the system in Umacao and connect the system in La Perla all as one, so that when when something happens, say there's a uh, something happens at one of the production facilities, they just had that in Puerto Rico. One of the, there was a, an explosion and a fire. When something like that happens and they need energy to be fed onto the grid, or else the whole grid's going to go down. All of these systems in Orocovis and Umacao, La Perla, Loisa, and Aguadilla, all of these systems can discharge and help meet the need of the grid to stabilize it. So all of the systems are helping to make sure that the whole grid of the whole island is stable and operational. And obviously if, if the problem were so great that it would that it, it they can't solve the problem and we can't stabilize the grid, then these systems would automatically transfer off grid and provide their life saving um, power to their nano grid and microgrid level. But the real goal for me is 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 getting them all connected, helping make the grid more stable, more reliable and then still having that resiliency in case it, the disaster is, is too great, we can we can get off and people still have power. I think that's the, that's the real future is when people take control of their energy production and, and, and consumption and own their own little piece of the, of the whole energy infrastructure. Uh, it's, a, it's a really cool future, really high-tech future, <laughs> too, that we can help bring about. Now, some venues are – much friendlier to solar power than others. Some venues provide tax incentives and facilitate solar energy, and other venues are almost obstructive in their laws and overall attitude. Do you see that? Absolutely. Sorry, go ahead. 
No, that's 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 absolutely the case. I mean, we have some jurisdictions that um, that are are really supportive of the solar industry, and some that are not at all. And and like you said, obstructionist almost. And in some cases, there's you know there's there's a reason behind it. For example, in Hawaii, there's a lot of people who have solar because the energy is so expensive, and they have grid tied solar and the and HECO, the Hawaiian Energy Commission is nervous that all of this solar production will destabilize the grid. So they have a reason. I, I, there's, there's question as to whether or not that's a legitimate reason, but they do have a reason. Um, and, and in Germany, we saw this too, right? Germany, which is this, this green energy oasis, everybody there is, is pro, pro alternative energy and solar power and wind. We had this too, where there, there was a certain level of grid penetration where it started to look like it was destabilizing the grid. And that's usually the argument you hear against solar. And that's, that's the world that Sonin grew up in. So, you know, the goal of battery storage, especially when grid tied, is to target these arguments. Making these, um, yeah. I've noticed that in some locations, and I don't know if this is widespread, there are cooperatives similar to what you were describing in Arizona and uh, similar uh, to what we're talking about in terms of the school, except in the school, of course, it's a, a public a community service, and in Arizona, it's a neighborhood. And so I understand that there are areas where people who have solar power are feeding the excess power, and then that becomes available to people who don't have it who want to buy from that grid. Um, is that something you can tell us a little bit about? Yeah, I, I don't know too much about you – know, the word energy co-op is, 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 I guess, used pretty often, but as far as I can tell, it's used to mean uh, various things. The, the general idea, especially with community solar, sounds like that's kind of what you're describing, community solar. So uh, maybe a, a little community will come together and say, we want to build a big solar plant. I can't afford to, to put a solar plant on my house, and, and Joe down the street can't afford, but if we all put our money together, we can produce a big one, which will generate revenue and generate money for our um, little community. So that, that's usually the idea of the community solar in the U.S. Now, in Germany, one, ver one version that we have in, in Sonnen of the Sonnen community is basically that we have what we call an energy sharing platform where using a, a, a set of, I guess, uh, a bookkeeping, we can say if Joe down the street used a kilowatt hour right now, but I produced a kilowatt hour of solar, I can feed, I can more or less say that the kilowatt hour that I fed on the grid went to Joe. So Joe used clean energy. So as long as we're producing as much energy within this Sonin community as we're using, at the end of the day, it more or less levels out. So Joe can say, even though he's, let's say he's across the country, if it's on the same grid, Joe can say that the kilowatt hour he used was produced by me, and everybody in the Sonin community produces as much energy as they as they used. So in Sonin community, you know, in Germany, the, the idea is that we're guaranteeing that any kilowatt hour you use will have been produced with clean energy. Um, even if it's with a battery, if I have to take control of this battery 
I can discharge the grid to ensure that down the street they're using a clean kilowatt hour. But that's the idea in Germany. In the U.S., it, it, it still doesn't work that well, largely because we have pretty heavily regulated um, grid structure. But I, I do see that as being, a, a, you know, part of the future. I think once the technology comes and the demand is there, that our grid is going to have to adjust to the needs of the people and to the ability of the technology on it. What suggestions would you share with our listeners, Adam, who want to gain a better understanding of the technology and its applications, its real-world applications for their business and home needs? Yeah, I would say, so, you know, one of the cool things about solar in the U.S. is it's largely a, a, a small business enterprise still. There's a lot of solar companies across the, the nation that can really help. Um, a quick Google search in your area should help you find a, a solar partner and, and, you know, ask them. Just, just ask them. They, are, they excel at helping find value in solar and, and explaining what the real value is. And, and you know, while you're talking to them, ask about Sonin. <laughs> I think there's a – like we said today, I think there are some very real applications and a really, really cool future for battery storage. I seem to recall hearing on the news recently that new tariffs were being imposed on solar technology imports. Is that true? That is true, yeah. So the the tariffs are imposed on solar panels that are being, that are being imported. Unfortunately, a large number of the solar panels um, – Used in the USA are imported, so I, I, the, the suspicion is that this will affect the solar industry. Uh, I don't know the exact details on the panels, but they will. Uh, I think the the tariff starts at a certain percentage and then decreases year over year. Um, but I do hope that it doesn't significantly. I, I hope that it doesn't slow the progress we started to make with this industry. Well, does that mean that, that there are going to be panels made in the U.S. to replace the imports, or does that mean that it's just going to become more expensive because you still are going to have to buy imported panels? I don't, I don't know the exact answer to that question, but the people I've spoken with seem to think that it just means the panels will be more expensive. I don't think the, I don't think the tariffs are great enough to make people want to manufacture in the U.S. I, I still don't know that we can, that any companies can do that cost effectively here. Um, but on the other hand, it, 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 it will just increase the cost of imports. But again, I can't speak to it. We don't, you know, in, in Sony we do, we more or less operate on the battery game, not the solar panels. So it's hard to say for sure what the effect will be. Where are the Sonin panels and batteries manufactured? Because I would expect that the cost of labor in Europe would be as high or higher than it is here. So, so are the, they... the... Go ahead. Yeah, so the, we don't make panels. So I, I don't, you know, it, we are more or less brand agnostic when it comes to what type of panels and solar inverters you use. Um, we do, we do, we will work with just about, just about any panels out there on the market. Our, our battery modules are manufactured in uh, Japan. They're, they're Sony uh, battery modules. 
But the but the tariff shouldn't affect battery modules. I think it's only on solar panels. Thank you, Adam, for joining us from Los Angeles, California. Thank you very much, Elena. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Adam Gettner, who is Director of Business Development Latin American Expansion at Sonin, who discussed microgrids to power Puerto Rico. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com.